0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. And I want to thank all the wonderful staff at the Humanities Center for doing such a terrific job uh, on these presidential lectures. The series is a really important part of what we do at Stanford, and we're very grateful for all the work that you do. Finally, um, thank you for giving me the honor of introducing Amy Gutman, President of the University of Pennsylvania, who's our speaker today. Amy's not only a fellow philosopher, and a former fellow provost, but she's also a friend, so it's my pleasure to welcome her back to Stanford. As president of the University of Pennsylvania, Amy Gutman represents an institution with the same high aspirations and academic values that we hold here at Stanford. The two schools have a lot in common. For instance, when founded, they were both considered unconventional, central to both of their missions, uh, was a practical, it was and is a practical approach to education, public service, and citizenship. Interestingly enough, this surprised me, Edward Moybridge, who pioneered modern motion pictures while taking photographs of horses for Leland Stanford here, uh, about a mile away from here, uh, began his experiments under Penn's auspices. This year, Penn is celebrating the tercentennial of the birth of its founder, Benjamin Franklin. Well, you are. It is a little bit older than us. I won't say you are. (laughs) When introducing the president of Penn, it's very hard not to quote Franklin. And there's one quote that I ran across that seems particularly appropriate for those of us in higher education and particularly appropriate in introducing Amy Gutman. It's rarely quoted in its charming entirety, but I want to do so now because it provides a good segue into the discussion of President Gutman's accomplishments. So Franklin said, if you would not be forgotten as soon as you're dead and rotten, either write things worth reading or do things worth the writing. Now I'm tempted to end Burma shave, but, <laughs> but that would show my age and probably most of you wouldn't understand that. Anyway, so... Anyone who knows knows Amy Gutman knows that she's already done both. She's done, she's written things worthy reading and she's done things worth the writing and she promises to do much more. When President Gutman was inaugurated in 2004, she unveiled the Penn Compact, which boldly recommits the university to increasing access to higher education, better integrating knowledge from different disciplines, and engaging both locally and globally. In just a short time, President Gutman has mobilized the campus around these noble goals and made significant progress in increasing Penn's global leadership in teaching and research and in positioning the school to be an agent of social change. When Pennsylvania Governor Edward Rendell spoke at her inauguration, he explained how she manages to do this. He said, quote, I've always been described as someone with boundless passion and boundless energy, after spending my first substantive meeting with Dr. Gutman, I was tired. I was tired. <laughs> my energy and my passion were outstripped in a few short moments. Now, those of us who have known Amy for a long time know how that could happen. President Gutman is widely recognized as a visionary academic leader. We look forward to the success of the Penn Compact and to what that success will mean for Penn, higher education, the Philadelphia area, our nation, and our world. But today, we're here to listen to her views as a distinguished scholar, well known for her work in the fields of political philosophy, ethics and human values, and the politics of identity. She's an award-winning author whose widely recognized works apply theory to the challenges of real-world democratic societies. Her skillful arguments and applications of real issues encourage us to embrace the promise of pluralism in the institutions we create and the democracies that we are constantly reshaping. Among her most recent books is Why Deliberative Democracy with Dennis Thompson of Harvard, which came out in 2004. Now, before the lecture, I asked Amy when she wrote that, and I'm sorry to say she said while she was provost, and I just don't understand how that could be. (laughs) But that's the energy that she shows. So in that book, she, uh, she and Dennis Thompson contribute to the ongoing debate about deliberative democracy by discussing how it can address such timely issues as justifying a decision to go to war. They ask how we can achieve respect for opposing opinions, transparency in decision making and accountability among elected officials. In another recent book, Identity and Democracy, President Gutman gave us a new way to consider the complex issue of identity politics and the role identity groups play in democracies. Now, as many of you know and remember, in 1995 she visited Stanford to deliver the Tanner Lectures on Responding to Racial Injustice. In those remarks, she outlined measures to end racial injustice and provided a basis for understanding policies such as affirmative action. Prior to her appointment at Penn, President Gutman was the provost of Princeton. She was also the Lawrence S. Rockefeller University Professor of Politics and the University Center for Human Values. In fact, she was the founding director of the University Center for Human Values. It's a mul- the University Center is a multidisciplinary center that sponsors teaching, scholarship, and public discussion of ethics and human values. Uh, Amy built that center into really an envy of all of higher education, and uh, we, we only hope that we can match what you did at the center. She earned her bachelor's degree from Radcliffe, a master's degree in political science from the London School of Economics, and a PhD in political science from Harvard. She served as the president of the American Society for Political and Legal Philosophy, and is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Today, Amy will be talking about extremism and tells me that this is the first part of a book she's working on as president on extremism. So please join me in welcoming Amy Gutman.
1: John, thank you um, for that warm and wonderful an undeserved introduction, Um, though I always think uh, if it were deserved, I wouldn't be so grateful for it, so thanks very much. And John Bender, thank you so much for inviting me. As I was telling both Johns, it makes me very nostalgic to be back here since I spent a year actually writing Identity and Democracy at Stanford, and so it's wonderful to be back here, and it is a great... um, Part of the variety of what I can do now, if I can find the time um, to do this, although you will, um, it's always with some trepidation that I give a lecture like this because you may conclude that, alas, the president really just is brain dead. But here I will um, speak about the first part of a three part, very small book that I'm writing on extremism. And the first part is all about extremist rhetoric. The second part will be about extremist ideology. And the third part about extremist behavior. So you have to put yourself in the frame of mind of thinking about extremist rhetoric. And I'm going to focus on extremist rhetoric in our society because I submit to you that if we think of extremism only as extremist behavior and terrorism, then in fact the extremists will have won. is a whole issue, and um, I will speak about that issue of what extremist rhetoric means in our society. So to begin, let me just ask if any of you remember the weekly point counterpoint segment from 60 Minutes. You have to be you won't remember. You're too young. Uh, but there was a weekly point-counterpoint segment from 60 Minutes which pitted the liberal Shayna Alexander against the conservative James Kilpatrick. Does anyone remember? A so few people remember it. I, I will bet that even more of you will recall the spoof of point-counterpoint from Saturday Night Live. And if you don't recall it, you will see it now. Can we roll
0: During the past few weeks in Los Angeles, actor Lee Marvin and his former living companion, Michelle Trello Marvin, have been in court to settle her claim that he owes her half his income from the six years they lived together. That is the subject of tonight's Point to Counterpoint. Jane will take the pro-Michelle Marvin point, while I take the anti-Michelle Trello counterpoint. Damn, times change, and so does the nature of relationships. People are reluctant to get married these days, and looking at divorce statistics, who can blame them? But the lack of a piece of paper does not necessarily mean the lack of a total commitment. A woman Michelle Triola. There was only testimony that she had sexual intercourse over 40 times with another man while living with Marvin, But I suppose that sort of fashionable promise, beauty really means nothing to someone like you, Jane, who hops from bed to bed with the frequency of a cheap ham radio. <laughs> <laughs> but heck, have no Fury, like a woman scorned, and Michelle Triola, like a screeching, squealing, rapacious swamp sow, is after Akralimara's Martin last three million dollars. I guess what you and Michelle are saying is that when you're on your backs, the meter is running. <laughs> choose
1: which parts of the based on such a shack on Well, I thought, in these perilous times, it doesn't hurt to begin with some humor. The Curtin-Akroyd exchange demonstrates, if nothing else, the entertainment value of extremist rhetoric. And that's part of its lure we're drawn to Dan's verbal pyrotechnics as he drives a single point to the ground and he effaces Jane. Now, when extremist rhetoric is so intentionally outlandish, it makes for great entertainment. And when it's for real, a serious and prevalent part of democratic discourse, extremist rhetoric has a similar but less benign effect. It also demeans opponents while radically narrowing understanding of the issue at hand. So let's look at a segment, not from a comic parody of public discourse, but from something that's very common today, and I'll just, what I'm showing you now is not an extreme version of extremist rhetoric, but part and parcel of what's come to be our public discourse. This is from MSNBC's Hardball, mind you, it's not from Fox News. This is MSNBC's Hardball, in which moderator Chris Matthews grills two young political activists.
0: Abortion rights are anti-abortion rights. I'm pro-life. I'm against abortion no, rights. It's abortion rights. Right. You yeah. don't think individuals have a right to abortion? I don't think there's more <laughs> no right. You don't think sure there no, no, should be a right to in the constitution? The issue of abortion rights, as written by the I, judges back in 73. The v. Wade decision. I, I I completely agree in the woman's right to choose yeah, right. So not choose. Not not, not what about the people it's among your friends? Your right. Or just is there, among the concerns, you all agree that well, abortion should be illegal. Uh, Oh, Conservatives? Conservatives agree that abortion should be banned. Yeah, abor- right. at least, at least, at least well, it's it's more of a, a state's right issue. If Roe v. Wade would be overturned, then it would be left up to the states. to ban abortion. I'd like each individual state to ban uh, the, uh, order of Do uh, you, you
1: think the most Conservatives believe the state should outlaw abortion? Each state should? It depends
0: what state you're coming from. Obviously, the most... But I mean, Conservatives. Well, right. of course. Yeah, of course. Conservatives, they say they want to... They want to nourish and cultivate and somehow like they don't want to destroy it. I'm surprised
1: it's that clear. Let me ask you, on the Democratic right. side, are the Democrats clearly pro-abortion rights? Well, there's a huge
0: diversity in the Democratic Party. I think we know that. I think the important issue here, is when we talk about this fight that's coming
1: in the Supreme Court, and the
0: fight that's going right. have- By the way, that huge diversity you just mentioned, yeah. Chris, is not noted in your party platform, which is 100% pro-choice. As is, as is the Young Democrats of America platform, but again, we're a huge party and we have lots of different people in every so you party, party. and so are, your your, are you I'm 100% pro life or pro choice. I'm 100% pro woman's right to choose, and I think most of the people in our organization are. But we have a lot of people with a lot of different views, and we're a, big, we're a big tent party. Big, they, party they, don't have, they don't have a big tent party. All the Democrat platform, Young mm-hmm. Democrats. Progressive, whatever. They all have a socialist platform. They all want big government. They all want redistribution of, of wealth risk. They all want big the you know, government going after me. But conservatives, see, they, truly, they have a, a white right because they have the libertarians, you have the conservatives, you have some pale conservatives, neoconservatives, Democrats. They're <laughs> not the same as that. We have a U.S. Congress now completely controlled in both houses by Republicans. Yeah. We have a Republican president, yeah. and we have a half trillion dollar debt. I know. Why? It's a big problem because Why? it's Half trillion
1: dollar budget deficit each year. Yeah. Yeah. We well, have yeah. trade deficit each year. Why does a party of fiscal conservatism keep passing uh, deficits? That's
0: the I don't think that's part of enough fiscal conservatism.
1: So your party it's is war. It's Why? It's Why? The, it's the war. It's not the war. It's because you're constantly giving out these
0: welfare programs. Already. no. no <laughs>
1: criticize the media. Up next. So what Matthews does here is he pushes for simplicity, for clarity of thinking, and then he challenges the clarity as simple-minded. And in conclusion, he declares we've energized the base on both sides. Now, I'll come back to that in a moment. Point, counterpoint, just to get the context here, was unusual at the time of the Saturday Night Live parody. It was the beginning, although we didn't know it at the time, of a trend, but very unusual, which is why the Saturday Night Live parody even came into existence. Uh, Matthew's hardball has become par for the course of American cable TV news. Talk radio is even more extreme. The public issues discussed are complex and important, but no light is shed on them. There is no edification. The entertainment is that of a wrestling match with far less demonstrable skill. Extremist rhetoric saturates our public discourse today on the broadest range of important issues, from the war on terror to taxation, creationism to immigration, environment to health care, the right to life and to end one 's life and if you want to see real extremist rhetoric, look at the what dominated in the Terry Schiavo case to animal rights. I want to ask what characterizes extremist rhetoric now and I will give a working definition of it just to focus on two elements that are prevalent in most extremist rhetoric. First, it is single-minded on any given issue. It passionately bespeaks the supremacy of a non-inclusive value. And second, extremist rhetoric expresses certainty about the single value's supremacy, a certainty that does not submit itself either to a reasonable test of truth or to a reasoned public debate. So extremist rhetoric, in short, and much of it is short, comes across as single valued or more colloquially single-minded certainty. But extremist rhetoric also admits of degrees. Um, The expression of single-mindedness on a complex issue is extremist, but it's less comprehensively so than single-mindedness on every issue. Similarly, the certainty may be expressed in a way that is more or less impervious to evidence and argument. And extremist rhetoric also comes in many secular as well as many religious varieties. It is not exclusively religious, for example. I want to consider three politically relevant questions about extremist rhetoric in our democratic context in increasing order of difficulty. I'm looking at extremist rhetoric in public discourse and I'm looking at it from the perspective of a political philosopher and in the context of a constitutional democracy. So the first question is what makes it alluring at all? Second. How can it imperil, as I will argue it does, imperil democratic discourse in spite of the constitutional protections of free speech to which it is entitled? And finally, and most difficult, um, I'll save it for the end and uh, welcome tomorrow any suggestions on, on this in particular. Finally, is there any potentially effective way of responding? to the prevalence of extremist rhetoric in our political culture, other than trying to beat one kind of extremism with another, the kind of tit-for-tat jousting manifested by the two young partisans in the Chris Matthews hardball segment. So first questions first. Why are so many people drawn to white-hot rhetoric like moths to a flame? I don't think this is so difficult. This question is so difficult to answer. I'll give you two, two answers, and I think there are many more. I think it's overdetermined. But let me give you just two answers that I think are fairly um, obvious. It is easier to believe passionately in a value or cause without regard to subtlety reasoned argument, probabilistic evidence, carefully tested scientific theory or fact. It's just easier to believe if you shut off subtlety, probability, complex scientific evidence. And expressions of single-minded certainty in politics can make complexity and uncertainty, frustration, and regret all appear to evaporate. In their place comes a single valued vision of how to set things just right, how to change society simply and certainly. And secondly, most of us find comfort in being surrounded by like-minded people who reinforce our most passionately held beliefs. Having comrades in rhetoric, even if not in arms, is comforting. And therefore, the mobilizing of the base is something in rhetorical terms that people find very comforting when it's on your side. So, second question. Since extremists have a constitutional right to speak as such, why worry? on constitutional grounds about the overwhelming prevalence of extremist rhetoric in political discourse. Now, some of you may question why I take for granted that extremist rhetoric has constitutional protection. I think it is pretty obvious um, to those of us who study and believe in the First Amendment that this extremist rhetoric deserves constitutional protection. Um, That, it would be easy if it didn't. So the real question is why, given that it does deserve constitutional protection, most of it, and certainly by my definition, there's no reason why it shouldn't. It doesn't, it doesn't pose a clear and present danger to democracy, and that's a soft standard of First Amendment protection. And certainly on the strictest standards, it der- deserves protection. So why worry about it? Well, for Aristotle, political rhetoric was above all about reasonable persuasion concerning questions of justice or the greater good. Extremist rhetoric, by contrast, implicitly denies the possibility of reasonable persuasion that expresses mutual respect regarding reasonable differences about what is right. From a democratic perspective, two dangers lie therein. One danger is tied to the way in which extremist rhetoric mobilizes the base there's nothing wrong with mobilizing the base in democratic politics. And quite the contrary. Partisans would be politically suspect if they did not try to mobilize their bases. But a public discourse that abounds in extremist rhetoric insidiously undermines the democratic promise of mobilizing citizens on the basis of some reasonable understanding of their interests or the public interest. Extremist rhetoric is almost always deceptive or worse. Um, To use a term now made technical by a friend and former colleague, Harry Frankfurt, it is a form of bullshit. Um, And as bullshit, it blatantly disregards and devalues truthful understanding upon which citizens in a democracy may make informed judgments. Another danger from a democratic perspective is that extremist rhetoric derides the very ideal of mutual respect across ideological divides. It demonizes political opponents as moral enemies, and rather than mobilize citizens to form mutually respectful coalitions, it aims to isolate the political base from internally diverse, yet mutually respectful, coalitions. Chris Chris Matthews could not stand the idea that the Democratic Party might, just might, be able to form a mutually respectful coalition on the issue of abortion. Now, it looks like he's wrong about that, and I'll get back to what the um, the alternative is because in my new home state, Pennsylvania, there is um, a pro-life Democrat running against Rick Santorum who is more moderate on the abortion issue but could not stand up against this kind of extremist battle. And who many, many voters who are pro-choice will vote for with respect, but deep disagreement on this issue of abortion. And if that's possible on the issue of abortion, surely it's possible on the whole range of other issues like taxation and environmental protection and so on. But you wouldn't know it from the way that most political rhetoric is conducted on our media, and indeed increasingly in other forums. So many people who are not ideological zealots use extremist rhetoric for their own political ends. At the same time, true zealots of all ideological stripes have insidiously subverted constitutional democratic values and institutions through the use of extremist rhetoric. And lest we think that because this is all surface, there is nothing to worry about, let me just remind you of a few historical examples in our society of the effective use of extremist rhetoric. Perhaps. The um, classic example um, in my lifetime very before I, it, it was previous to my recollection of my, it's previous to my adult lifetime, but it's been revived um, in Good Night and Good Luck. I don't know how many of you have seen that movie who couldn't remember, even I can't remember, the McCarthy era. But Senator Joe McCarthy's extremist rhetoric unleashed a witch hunt for communists in the United States, rallying the House Un-American Activities Committee to hound law-abiding citizens. Mind you, it wasn't in all likelihood sufficient to do the case to do this, but I submit to you it was a necessary part of McCarthy's success that he was so good at using extremist rhetoric. One communist in the faculty of one university, McCarthy declared, quite famously, is one communist too many. That was in 1952. Fast forward to the 1992 Republican National Convention, and Pat Buchanan launched a tirade against advocates of abortion rights, women's rights, gay rights, and the separation of church and state. My friends, he said... There is a religious war going on in our country for the soul of America. It is a cultural war, as critical to the kind of nation we will one day be, as was the Cold War itself. Here is a more recent and increasingly common kind of extremist rhetoric. This is jihad, pal. There are no innocent bystanders bystanders, because in these desperate hours, bystanders are not innocent. We'll broaden our theater of conflict. Now, this sounds like the rhetoric of an Islamic terrorist, but it isn't. The speaker's name is Mike Rizel. He's a passionate environmentalist. His rhetoric calls for war on the guilty, the unconverted, in the name of the supreme value of environmental protection. Extremist rhetoric conveys that opponents are, without a doubt, our moral enemies to be defeated. We have no need to respect, let alone deliberate with them. And compromise is heresy. Now, these perils of extremist rhetoric in the context of a constitutional democracy flow all too naturally from the expression of single-minded certainty, which excludes other values from competing for public support and excludes them without any regret or respect for one's political adversaries. But unlike extremist behavior, most extremist rhetoric doesn't pose a clear and present danger. It does not directly threaten the lives or well-being of other people, nor does it directly threaten to destroy our democracy. It therefore deserves the constitutional protections of free speech in our society. But that doesn't mean it deserves our endorsement or our use. The increasing prevalence of rhetoric that deceives or bullshits the public and divides the public into hostile camps within the limits of the law, I submit to you, threatens to block two major arteries of support for constitutional democracy, extra institutional arteries of support for constitutional democracy. The first artery is mutual respect across reasonable differences, and the second major artery is morally defensible compromise across difference, the compromise that's necessary to create majoritarian coalitions that can actually work together, understand, and appreciate or at least respect one another's competing values. Yet extremist rhetoric can readily pay off in partisan democratic politics. It has great media appeal. That's why I find this a puzzle that's worth puzzling over and trying to figure out. Despite the fact that a majority of Americans are not extremist, extremist rhetoric has great public appeal. Even partisans who are not true believers, therefore, may think extremist rhetoric the most effective means of mobilizing a political base and painting all opponents as undeserving of any consideration. Now, what I've done so far is try to paint a picture of what extremist rhetoric is and why it poses some serious dangers to our democracy. But this isn't to say that all extremist rhetoric is equally dangerous or even bad for democracy. Quite the contrary. Some perilous times and contexts may call for extremist rhetoric as the most morally defensible course of action, and that's why this is a far more complex picture than one might at first think. When confronting slavery in the antebellum America, we rightly applaud those who with certainty and single-mindedness defended liberty as the supreme value and called for the abolition of slavery. After all, a far, far stronger moral case can be made for maximizing some single values such as liberty, than others, such as racial supremacy. So we should admire extremist rhetoric when it rightly promises to carry with it more public good than a more moderate rhetorical strategy. Yet, we must also remember that passion, passionate extremism, in the service of a supremely just cause, is not enough in politics, so I use the example of extremist rhetoric, which is passionately in favor of liberty against slavery, as the sort of controlling case of why we have to be careful and not paint all extremist rhetoric in the box of bad in some contexts it is a good thing but The dangers that I just spoke of, of extremist rhetoric, even apply to extremist rhetoric in good causes. Doris Kearns Goodwin reminds us that due to his early hardline rhetoric, Secretary of State William Seward surrendered the ability that Lincoln possessed, in part by virtue of Lincoln's own more tempered rhetoric. Lincoln possessed an ability that Seward squandered to unite a coalition to stop the spread of slavery and ultimately to defeat it. Extremist rhetoric, even in a good cause, tends to appeal to an already converted base. There is a role for that. But it tends also to exclude those who otherwise might embrace a less extremist but more winning political coalition. Now, I remember from when I was little this very homey rhyme. And I always wondered why I remembered it. And it's for this point that I remembered it. And the homey rhyme, it's about why being right. And this is for moral philosophers, we have to remind ourselves, I think, that in politics, being right is not enough. And the homey rhyme goes as follows. It's not about politics, but you'll see its it's extension. Um, it goes as follows. Here lies the body of William Jay, who died defending his right of way. He was right, dead right as he sped along, but he's just as dead as if he'd been dead wrong. Well, William Jay killed himself, but in politics, being right um, not, risks killing other people, even in a good because It is much better in politics to be right in a way that may rhetorically give up some of that extremist certainty, but be able to actually successfully champion a good cause. Now let me give an example from uh, American politics again of, a defender, a famous defender of extremist rhetoric. When Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater prepared to accept the Republican nomination for president in 1964, he became the target of widespread attacks from moderate Republicans who charged that his views were dangerously extreme. Goldwater directly confronted these attacks in his famous acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention. I would remind you, he said, that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Well Goldwater was half right, but only half right. Extremist rhetoric in a good but single-valued cause, even the cause of liberty, still carries with it two general dangers. It excludes from consideration other important political values such as security, education, health, and yes, justice. And it condemns those who dare to disagree. No single value, not even liberty, can safely claim to be a total solution to the problems afflicting humankind. Both liberty and equality, as Isaiah Berlin wrote, are among the primary goals pursued by human beings through many centuries. But total liberty for the wolves is death to the lambs. Total liberty of the powerful, the gifted, is not compatible with the rights to a decent existence of the weak and less gifted. Justice, on the other hand, is not a single public value it internally admits other public values under its rubric. And among the values it must admit in a constitutional democracy is mutual respect among persons. It introduces a hope for non-extremists who want to make a public difference. And it's a hope to which I will return in a moment. Non-extremists have reason to look beyond extremist rhetoric because of the significant dangers it poses to a constitutional democracy, albeit indirectly. It shuts out consideration of competing values that are basic to constitutional democracy. It shuts down constructive conversations that offer relevant evidence and argument that can prove public decisions. It associates like-minded people together in a way that denigrates and degrades rather than respects those who beg to differ. And beg to differ they must. And it even discounts the intelligence of many of those who are on the same side. Callers to Rush Limbaugh's talk radio show are known as ditto heads. And they fall into this last category. They form an amen chorus to Limbaugh's rants directed at the usual suspects, who are, in case you don't know, Democrats, feminists, whom he calls feminazis, um, gays, environmentalists, minority activists, judges, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton, his famous, his most famous enemy, favorite enemy. Even if we grant that some extremists are right, we should still recognize that the vast majority of people who seek public power and influence are all too prone to believe, without warrant, but with subjective certainty, that they have the absolute right on their side. They therefore denigrate and dismiss the many reasonable and respectable people who disagree with them. They also block constructive examination of their own values and beliefs, And the aftermath of the U.S. intervention in Iraq to my mind painfully illustrates the problems attending a politics in which public officials fail to take the facts into account because they're certain they are right and they refuse to consider more than one side of an argument. Yet many many non-extremists have come to accept extremist rhetoric as standard partisan political practice. And if I had to guess, the most common reaction to what I'm arguing here, it will be, but it succeeds, right? I mean, that's the way politics works. It's partisan, it's tough. Be a realist about it it mobilizes the base. Must it be this way? And that's the third and hardest question, which I'll spend the rest of my time trying to answer. For those of us committed to upholding the values of constitutional democracy, where does the reasonable hope lie for upholding the pluralistic values of constitutional democracy against the backdrop of the increasing prevalence of extremist rhetoric in our political culture. There are many people here um, whom I know, colleagues and friends, who wonderfully appear on the Lehrer News Hour in the most reasonable non-extremist forums of news. But we have to recognize how few people watch the lair news hour and how even fewer of those people are from across the political aisle the dominant forms of extremist, of dominant forms of political communication in our society are forums for extremist rhetoric so where against this this increasing prevalence does the reasonable hope for a more pluralistic form of political discourse lie. Well, first it lies in the fact, borne out in survey after survey, that a majority of citizens are not themselves extremists or even single issue voters. Based on the hardball segment we saw earlier, one might assume that a candidate's position on abortion is a deal maker or breaker for a large proportion of voters. But this is not so. The most reliable surveys and scholarly studies consistently find a far more pluralistic and open-minded electorate than the public catered to by extremist rhetoric on cable TV and talk radio and among many political elites. The problem we face is not that most people are extremists, but rather that one form of extremist rhetoric often breeds another, counter-extremist rhetoric. For example, creationism is often communicated in extremist terms as part of a comprehensive and fully comprehensible biblical plan. And as such, it's impervious to a mountain of evidence that refutes its claims to being a scientific theory on a par with evolution. Creationism has bred in recent years the opposite form of extremism. I'll call it scientism, which expresses an equal and opposite certainty that all human understanding derives from the singular value Of scientific inquiry. It it treats religion with open contempt. When Richard Dawkins proclaims that, quote, faith is one of the world's great evils, direct quote, faith is one of the world's great evils. And Dawkins is only one now of many prominent scientists who've gone on record as basically dismissing all of religion because some religious believers have this extreme view of creationism that denies the mountains of scientific evidence that exists. When Dawkins does that, he drives democratic discourse deeper into the cycle of mutual disrespect and denigration. Trading one kind of extremism in for another, creationism for scientism, does not fare well for an informed public policy Or for a mutually respectful citizenry. It would be better to respond to religious extremism with a more evidence-based and mutually respectable counterargument. So how? So first, I want to say how this could work. And secondly, can we find more institutional means to support the alternative than we now have? The how, I think, is the following. Don't fall into the opposite of extremist rhetoric, which is wishy-washy, you may be right, I may be right relativism, but staunchly defend evolution against creationism as a scientific theory while also practicing what Dennis Thompson and I have called an economy of moral disagreement. Recognize that science does not have answers to many questions, such as the great cosmological questions that religious moderates are understandably trying to answer. When we economize on our moral disagreements, we minimize rejection of the positions we oppose. When we defend our points of view vigorously, but express mutual respect for our adversaries by minimizing the disagreement rather than maximizing it, we also make room for moral compromise, which is absolutely essential to a democratic politics. So what I'm proposing is one counterweight to the harmful effects of rhetorical extremism is what I call morally engaged pluralism. A pluralistic rhetoric is one that recognizes competing human goods. Morally engaged pluralism expresses itself in a way that honors those constitutional standards of respect for persons and reason giving for public policy that many democratic citizens are able to agree upon even when we can't agree upon complete conceptions of justice. So in colloquial terms, morally engaged pluralists speak in a way that seeks common ground but stands up for what they believe in. They minimize rejection of other reasonable perspectives, but they stand up for what they believe. So can this be an effective rhetorical strategy? The reasonable hope lies in the fact that most democratic citizens are pluralists. And respecting a plurality of perspectives carries more lasting and long-term benefits in democratic politics than playing exclusively to a narrow base. However, morally engaged pluralists must not check their emotions at the door. Rationality is a bond between persons, but, as Stuart Hampshire observes, It's not a very powerful bond, and it's apt to fail as a bond when there are strong passions on two sides of a conflict. Rationality alone is apt to fail as a bond, but morally engaged pluralists can and should be as passionate about their values as they are rational. So to stand a chance of success, morally engaged pluralists need to be as passionate about the values we defend as extremists are. We need to set priorities among values and articulate them clearly and forcibly to avoid suggesting that all ends are equally valuable or can be simultaneously pursued. An effective example was the Clinton 1992 campaign message. Economic opportunity and social justice for the forgotten middle class, which was then translated into a robust set of policy proposals communicated clearly and passionately. A wide range of partisan political perspectives, Republican as well as Democrat, can be connected in such rhetorically effective ways to the passionate pursuit of justice, justice being an inclusive, value in politics. We must look beyond extremist rhetoric to other rhetorical strategies, but we also have to look beyond rhetorical strategies to institutional practices that can help make room for pluralist public discourse and to counter the prevalence of extremist rhetoric in our political culture. So how do we make more institutional room for alluring expressions of morally engaged pluralism? Well, I'll offer a few suggestions. Political scientists and historians can probe whether some political institutions, such as our presidential primary system, put too much of a premium on mobilizing a minority base to the advantage of extremist rhetoric and the detriment of majority rule. It is important to look at the way different political electoral systems give incentives for different kinds of rhetorical strategies. And it's important to look at that in a constitutional democracy from the perspective of a basic value of majority rule within the limits of constitutional rights. It's all too common that people look in constitutional democracy at the limits of rights and neglect what the basic structure of politics is that would allow majorities to form, to rule within those limits. Now, I know some people like Pam Carlin, who's here, have not neglected this, but a lot of, there's been a lot more focus on the rights than on the way in which we can structure a democracy to make majoritarian rule more robust. Communication experts can explore what the responsible media can do to uphold their profession's public trust and holding public officials to account for the accuracy of their rhetoric. Civic leaders can focus on creating forums that bring citizens together across ideological divides to deliberate about issues of moment. Jim Fishkin has written extensively about it and more than written about it, has actually brought together people who have instituted deliberative forums that didn't exist. We need more of that. Presidential debates could feature capable moderators who probe candidates and could be set up in a way that is truly probing. And little things could make a difference. Let me give you one slightly unlikely example, but it could be implemented. We could have a bullshit buzzer (laughs) go off. Whenever a candidate offers an evasive or untruthful answer in a debate, factcheck.org exists now, and it basically buzzes every time, metaphorically buzzes every time a candidate says something that's untruthful. You could use that, given current technology, to actually have very entertaining (laughs) debates where candidates are held at the moment they speak to saying things that are at least factually accurate and not bullshit. Evasive answers could be buzzed as well. That's my bullshit buzzer edition Not just unfactual, but totally evasive. Moving from the micro to the macro, colleges and universities should do a better job in cultivating engaged pluralists, educated people full of passionate intensity for reasoned argument and openness to reasonable differences and sharp disagreement. That means that we have to have more courses, more forums in which we we ask people to be passionate and argumentative, but we teach and we hold people up to standards of reason as well. If we do nothing, we may find ourselves threatened by a culture in which, as William Butler Yeats wrote in the Second Coming, the best lack all convictions, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I do believe that this is a serious problem, and it's a serious problem in our culture that, yes, is eclipsed in public rhetoric as well as reality by extremist behavior of all sorts. But if we let that extremist behavior eclipse the problem of the prevalence of our extremist rhetoric in our culture, then, I submit to you, we have let the terrorists truly win. So I have defended a democratic rhetoric of morally engaged pluralism passionately, and I hope reasonably, but not as a value-neutral enterprise. It is laden with constitutional democratic values. And I have suggested that citizens of a constitutional democracy should seek some alternative to demeaning opponents and driving all values but one or two into the ground with a certainty that is rarely warranted. In conclusion, I would simply say that a simple reason why this is a worthwhile task is that the person with whom you disagree in democratic politics, far from being an ignorant slut typically has something to say that is worth considering. Thank you.